0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Alison Van Diggelen. I'm a host of Fresh Dialogues and a BBC contributor. It's my pleasure to introduce Scott Cooper, Managing Partner at Andreessen Horowitz and author of Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. Scott has been with the firm since it was founded in 2009 and has overseen the firm's rapid growth from three employees to 150 plus, and from $300 million in assets under management to more than $7 billion. He teaches at Stanford Law School, the Haas School of Business, and the Bolt School of Law at UC Berkeley. He previously served as chairman of the board of the National Venture Capital Association. Scott received both his bachelor's degree in public policy and his law degree from Stanford University. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Scott Cooper. Thank you. So, Scott, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. So, your book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road... Uh, Your aim is to kind of pull back the curtain on the secret world of venture capital, and I want to help you do that tonight.
1: Excellent. Excellent.
0: So let's start by talking about definitions. Can you give us a brief summary of what venture capital is and what it's not?
1: Yeah, basically the way to think about venture capital is our job is to hopefully finance companies that in some cases you know, more traditional, less risky financing is not available. So, you know, there are these things called banks, right, that we all know about. And banks often do things like provide debt for companies. Uh, But often people who are trying to raise venture capital, either they can't convince the banks to do it because it's too risky, or quite frankly, they don't want that money because you have to pay back that bank money at some point in time, right? So our job is basically to provide what we call equity financing. So we're putting permanent capital into something. And our hope is that five, seven, ten years down the line, it turns into a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter or something of that order of magnitude.
0: Great. So your book refers specifically to Sand Hill Road. Yeah. For our audience here tonight and for those listening on the radio, can you talk about the significance of Sand Hill Road in the VC world?
1: Yeah, so Sand Hill uh, is a little bit, you know, so the other analogies are, you know, if you're a country music fan, as I am, uh, you know, Music Row would be the equivalent in Nashville, or Hollywood Boulevard might be the equivalent in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, or even Wall Street in New York. But like a lot of those, it's kind of a, um, the symbol the symbolism of it is probably more important than the actual physical geography and topology. So if you've ever been to Sand Hill Road, which is obviously not that far from here, it's not that exciting, actually. So it's a bunch of kind of fairly drab, two-story buildings. And, you know, the most exciting thing about Sand Hill Road is the fact that it's in proximity to Stanford University. That's a much more attractive place to be. But for some reason, the, the venture capitalists have all gravitated towards Sand Hill Road, uh, probably because of its proximity to Stanford. And so, you know, it is relatively convenient in the sense that you can drive up and down the road and probably meet, you know, 50 different venture capital firms and hopefully finance your your company in one afternoon.
0: <laughs> as easy as that. Right. So I'd like to get to the secret shortly, but let's just Uh, set the scene more here. You write the VC-funded companies are responsible for about 85% of all research and development in the US. Can you frame the outsized role of venture capital in the wider economy?
1: Yeah, it's really amazing when you look at it. And and, um, some of these numbers, you know, I, I, I had read before, but it really helps you to put into context. So, Venture, in terms of dollars, is actually tiny, a tiny, tiny industry. And you wouldn't know it for those of us, obviously, who are here in the Bay Area, because it's just kind of part and parcel of what we see and what we do every day. But if you look at it relative to other assets, you know, on a good year, last year, which was a, which was a very good year, uh, venture capital invested about $130 billion into companies. Now, that certainly is a, is a real number. But if you compare that to hedge funds or you compare that to, you know, private equity funds or you compare it to kind of, you know, the global GDP or even, you know, the size of the U.S. public stock market, it's tiny. It's probably, you know, a tenth of 1% or something of total dollars. But as those numbers talk about, what's amazing is how critical venture has been in terms of funding entrepreneurship and R&D that's gone on to create a huge amount of jobs. So if you look at kind of the top five, you know, market cap companies today in in the, you know, U.S., all venture-backed companies if you look at job creation, you know, kind of roughly something like you know, 50% of job creation over the last 30, 35 years has come out of venture finance companies. So it's a business that is very small in terms of nominal dollars, but you know, quite frankly, it's just had a real outsized impact on the U.S. economy.
0: So in his foreword to your book, Eric Ries, the author of The Lean Startup, said, and I quote, the most urgent obligation of the startup movement is to help build a more equitable society. How do you see the role of venture capital in this startup ecosystem? System and its role in building a more equitable society?
1: Yeah, this is one of, I think, the major Challenges and conundrums that we've had in the business. Um, So there's, I think, a couple ways to think of this problem. One is just if you look at representation in the industry of, you know, women uh, both in terms of, if you look at it in two ways, one is in terms of the funders of businesses so the venture capitalists and then also kind of, you know, CEOs and founders of companies. uh, You know, we have really poor numbers when you look at female representation in the industry. So something, I don't know if this number is exactly right, but it's directionally right. Something like 2.2% of funding last year, Went to female led or female founded companies. So it's, it's very small. We've got the same issue with respect to kind of, you know, ethnic minorities as well. So African-American funding, Mexican-American funding is, is very poor. So it's an area that I think we have responsibility for that, quite frankly, I don't think as an industry you know, we have done a great job on. And, um, you know, I, the, the a, book, a book certainly is not going to solve these problems. But part of, you know, what I hope people take away from the book is if we can demystify the business a little bit and therefore make it less kind of more approachable than it may have been to kind of, you know, people who are not just in the general networks that we all run around in, that that might help. Over time, change some of those numbers.
0: And so tonight's conversation, I'd like to help entrepreneurs in the audience understand the viewpoint of the VC. Right. You have been on both sides of the table. You are an entrepreneur with LoudCloud. Can you talk about what you learned and what, how that gives you insights for... The entrepreneur that's knocking on your door. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I'm trying to get a sense of kind of the average age of this crowd. But uh, so LoudCloud, uh, if, if, you, if you're old enough to remember uh, kind of when we used to have this thing called the tech bubble, uh, LoudCloud was a creature of the tech bubble. So the company was started in 1999 by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, along with two other co-founders, Tim Howes and Insek Rhee. And uh, the business was intended to actually be what is now kind of what looks like Amazon Web Services, right? So we were trying to build this idea that, hey, if you're a developer, you've got your code, you ought not have to worry about what the servers are, what the networking components are, what the storage is. You ought to be able to just drop your code into this computer in the sky and automatically, you know, run. And it was a great idea, uh, like a lot of ideas, and maybe we'll come back to this. uh, It was probably 10 years too early, and, and one of the themes that I talk about in the book is, you often see things getting recycled now that are not necessarily new ideas, but are things that we've seen before. That now, actually, because of the pace of technology or other things, uh, become viable. Um, so we we started this business in '99, raised a bunch of money, grew to you know about 685 people, and then precipitously over the next 12 to 18 months, basically you know downsized to about 80 people and went through all kinds of layoffs and, and other things. Um, I, I think the biggest takeaway we ultimately. I won't go through the whole story. We ultimately sold the business to Hewlett-Packard in 2007. And so if you had made it through all those different machinations, it was actually, you know, a reasonable place to be. I think the biggest thing that I hope that experience brings is just a real sense of kind of uh, respect for the entrepreneurial process and empathy for what it is to build a company. And, in fact, one of the core values of our firm, Andreessen Horowitz, is respect for the entrepreneur. And we manifest that. In some very simple ways, which is, you know, we find ourselves ten dollars a minute every time we're late for a meeting with an entrepreneur, just to kind of demonstrate that okay, wasting somebody's time by not showing up on time for a meeting is. And how big is, is that it part? Way. Well, we get we keep giving it away, so we, it never it never gets over a couple hundred uh, dollars, and then we 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 changed our policy actually about six months ago, where we now give it to the entrepreneur in the meeting for whom we were late. I like used, it. I like it. We used, to, we used to hold it and wait till it got to a certain size, and then we would do either a trivia game or something, you know, internal to the firm and allow people to compete for it. But I think it's probably more rightly so belongs with the entrepreneurs.
0: And what else respect?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, we do everything, so that's kind of one thing we do. Um, we track internally what we call a service level agreement, an SLA for people who come from the services business, which is okay, when we see a deal, there's a certain amount of time, usually 48 hours, 72 hours, where we kind of commit, okay, we're going to get back to somebody. When we get back to people, we give them feedback on why we're passing on the deal, so we we have one other rule inside the firm, which is there are no perpetual maybes, which is a real problem to be in venture capital, so unfortunately, a lot of venture capitalists don't like to say no but they're not quite sure they're ready to say yes and so we put entrepreneurs into this state of suspended animation uh and unfortunately it's much better a, a a quick no and a clear no is much better than a you know perpetual maybe or even a potential yes down the line so uh we do we do those things um we actually do what's called a net promoter score so every time we meet with an entrepreneur we send them a survey and ask them to rate us on how we did this and if you know anything about net promoter scores usually you survey your customers, right the people who actually use your product. So we're actually surveying 99% of the people who we rejected, uh, and but we're trying to find out, okay, at least did you feel like the process was respectful and you learned something? And so I hope that kind of having been on the other side, that we bring that kind of empathy to the business. And I think importantly also, we recognize the difference between what does the venture capitalist do and what does the entrepreneur do? And as much as we are lucky as venture capitalists to be a funding source and hopefully helpful to these businesses. We also recognize very clearly that, look, you know, we, we don't do the work of building these companies. That is clearly what the entrepreneurs do. And we try to be very careful that we don't bridge those lines and, you know, kind of create more problems than we, when we solve.
0: Good. That's admirable. Okay. So I'd like to get into some of the secrets. You Great. frame the VC entrepreneur relationship as a 10-year marriage. And you write, you must know your partner. Can you give a quick summary of what limited partners are and why their investment goals impact the VC and the entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Let me just make one comment on your marriage point, and I don't want to strain the analogy too much, but... uh um, it turns out, I have this in the book, which I learned when I was writing the book, that most VC relationships actually last longer than most marriages in the U.S. It turns out, <laughs> turns out that eight years, which I didn't know, and I'm happily married now for almost 22, but it uh, turns out eight years is the median actual uh, kind of length of a marriage in the U.S. So it's often the case that a VC relationship can extend beyond that. Um, and so it's important, and we, we use the analogy of, you know, dating is important in this world just as it is in your, you know, kind of personal life, which is you wouldn't enter into a 10-year relationship normally without dating somebody. And in this case, the venture capital equivalent of dating is important. So to your question about limited partners, so limited partners are basically the people who give us money, uh, and uh, they vary, but you know, it might be you know, Stanford University, the endowment, so if any of you have gone to a school and you've donated money to your alma mater, uh, their job is to go earn a return on that money, and one of the ways they do so is hopefully investing in firms like ours and other venture capital firms who can earn a return on that. Uh, often there are foundations and lots of other people, so essentially the incentive that those limited partners create for us is to earn a very high rate of return on their investment. So because they can invest in bonds and they can invest in stocks and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, kind of we generally know and, you know, obviously those are accessible to all of us here in the room. You know, you can know, okay, well, if a bond is paying two and a half percent, that's what my likely return is. What they're looking for in venture is a very, very high return over a long period of time. And what that means is, in this business, if you're successful, you should be generating probably minimum 25%, but probably 30% annualized returns for those investors. That probably means every you know, 10 years you are tripling or more the money that they give, they give you. And so what that really means then for us is we are motivated, and obviously we are incented by that incentive structure that the LPs have given, have given us. And if you understand that part about the VC business, then I think... A lot of the other stuff, presumably, that we'll talk about here tonight will kind of fall into place because everything falls from that initial incentive structure of who are the people who finance us that give us the ability then to go invest in startups.
0: So let's explore what do VCs want. Yeah. You're right. There are three things that VCs use to evaluate opportunities. People, product, and market. So let's start with people. What are the common traits of successful founders that you have?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) So um, they're highly varied, but it's funny. When we first, when we raised our first fund, uh, we went out, we did a pitch deck, right? Just like, you know, entrepreneurs come pitch to us. We did a pitch deck to our limited partners, and we had a slide in there which said exactly this, which is what are the characteristics of founders that we like to back? And we had a bullet there which said uh, um, egomaniacal behavior. And, uh, if any of you come from the limited partner world or know that it's a very staid business. And so we got a lot of very funny looks when we walked in the door and a lot of them were, you know, not quite sure. Do they want to back, do they want to back a firm who's going to invest in quite frankly, you know, egomaniacs? Um, now we realized probably the word choice was not a good one, but, but it really was illustrative of what we're trying to get at, which is you have to be, uh, you have to be kind of partly delusional to be able to start a company because you know, the chances of success are low. You probably have people telling you all day long that what you're doing will never succeed, you know, if you're married or you have a partner, your partner's probably wondering why did you quit some job that was paying you a steady income so that you can go take a 75% you know, kind of compensation haircut with the hope that over time you might earn something on your equity. And so so much of kind of where we start with is, okay, what is the passion that brings you to this business? What organically kind of caused you to, you know, almost feel like you have to do this business? Um, you know, we talk about kind of this idea of a company-first company versus a product-first company. And what we mean by that is a product-first company is, you know, I had some experience that kind of just in my life that forced me to go build a solution to a problem, and I almost felt like I couldn't just not turn that into a company. It was literally this organic pull that brought me there, whereas a company-first, you know, company might be you and I are friends, and we sit down and we decide we want to start a company together, and we whiteboard a bunch of stuff, and those businesses can work as well, too, but this idea of this organic pull is kind of the really, really big piece. And then, you know, uh, we talk about a lot of this in the book. Probably the most successful entrepreneurs then are incredibly good at storytelling. And... Uh, I mean that in the most sincere way, which is not storytelling that you're kind of, you know, selling somebody down the river and hoodwinking them, but the ability to basically uh, convey to people, again, to cause them to do crazy things as well, right? Which is, how do I convince you to quit your job and come work for me? How do I convince a customer whose every incentive structure is to not take a risk on me as a new product, but to wait for five years when it's proven? And so much of the ability of, you know, the difference between success and failure in these businesses is that kind of ability of somebody to kind of cause people to follow them in some respects. I mean, I, I joked the other day, um, you know, maybe we should recruit entrepreneurs from the seminary basically, right? Because in some respects, you need someone who can really kind of cause people to again, kind of almost willfully suspend disbelief and believe that you can do something well in advance of any data that shows that you can and to it. And be a true
0: evangelist. And,
1: tr- and be an evangelist, that's exactly so right. So can yeah. you
0: give us an example, maybe with Lyft, what was the storytelling? Yeah. What was it about the founders that you said we have to back these guys?
1: Yeah, the storytelling was really interesting. It was mostly about their origin story, which is they had started this business. Lyft was originally called Zimride, and it was kind of this idea of, quite frankly, you know, car sharing that we now know in the formation that you see it with Lyft, but it was a little bit less, uh, there wasn't much technology back in Zimride. It was more like the car sharing sometimes you see, you know, on the Bay Bridge, right, which is okay, like, you know, does somebody in my neighborhood basically want to carpool with me? That was essentially kind of what the, what the business was, and it was a small business. There wasn't a whole lot there, but it was, it was just the, the idea of Lyft was born out of this very, you know, kind of, you know, real experience they had of basically trying to do carpooling and car sharing in a way that um, at least we found very compelling. The other thing I think that was really compelling about the story, and this goes a little bit to kind of market size, so I won't, I won't take us too far off, but was their ability to articulate why this could be such a big and interesting opportunity, right? And I think, you know, a lot of people who heard those stories in the early days said, okay, It's an interesting market, you know, there's these things called taxis, and we kind of know what they do, Uh, but the Lyft team was really able to say, look, you know, you have to imagine a world where everybody's walking around with basically a supercomputer in their pocket that we, of course, call a cell phone, and the ability of technology, a new technology platform, to unleash consumer demand in a way that, you know, kind of didn't exist before was just... You know, it, it kind of it stretched our thinking and stretched our imagination in a way that, you know, we hadn't seen before.
0: And you write, uh, VCs like founders with strong opinions, weakly held. Yeah. Explain what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, we hold ourselves, by the way, to the same standard, and I'll talk about that. So, what we mean by strong opinions, weakly held is, um, again, for you to do something that, you know, is such so challenging as building a company, uh, you have to have done your homework, and, and hopefully by doing your homework, you've developed a very clear set of strategies and product you know, roadmaps that hopefully allow you to kind of give yourself confidence that this is something to do. Um, the weekly held portion, though, is that we know, and, and entrepreneurs, of course, know this too, that the product or the idea that you have today is unlikely to bear a whole lot of resemblance to what that product or technology might look like over the first three, five, seven years when you actually get into market and start to iterate and test and do all kinds of things. And so we we like the idea that you've got kind of, we use the term internally a slightly different way. We call it a prepared mind, which is we all have thesis, we all have ideas, but you need to leave your mind open enough such that you might get new data over time that convinces you that going the route you thought you were going down may not necessarily be the best route. Now, the the counter to that is we don't want someone who is too easily manipulable. Uh, And in fact, you know, sometimes when we have people pitch, you know, if in a 30-minute pitch or an hour pitch, if, you know, we can convince you that your whole idea is wrong or your go-to-market is wrong, that makes us pretty nervous, quite frankly, that, you know, kind of, you know, we've, we've just learned about your business. And if your ideas are that weakly held, uh, that uh, that's, that's certainly a red flag for us. But in general, the idea is being malleable, being responsive to market data. Uh, you know, VCs use this very euphemistic term called pivot. Which basically means you know we screwed up and we have to start over uh, and that's a normal part of the product building process uh, but uh, that kind of ability to pivot when the information tells you you need to is a real critical factor
0: right so I wanted to just drill down a little on another entrepreneur who's very well known probably by everyone here around the world Elon Musk yeah. What's from your perspective as a VC what's he done right and what's he done wrong and you know you can talk about yeah. delusion delusional
1: yeah, so we're not investors in Elon, so I'm completely unconstrained in what I can say. Um, no, look, I, I think what he's done well, like, look, I think he's a great example, uh, whatever adjective, you know, you use to describe him, but he's a great example of a storyteller of, and I mean that again in the, with the utmost respect. With a storyteller, an ability to kind of paint a vision, an ability to, you know, and, and obviously he rubs some people the wrong way for this, but to be able to kind of ignore the common wisdom and the common parlance that he hears from people all the time that, you know, you'll never be able to build, you know, an uh, electric car, you'll never be able to put a spaceship, you know, in space better than the US government can do. And again, you know, I think you would probably, uh, you know, very well describe him as somebody who, you know, willfully suspends disbelief in a way that, you know, so far has led to a lot of kind of product success. I think the the challenge uh, that I at least I, I see sometimes with entrepreneurs like that is, um, you, know, you, you, go, you know, you go from sometimes being the pirates to you become the army at some point in time or the navy, right? And at some point in time, you do have to recognize that, you know, uh, you know, you can have a different, I think, persona when you're trying to get off the ground. But when you have public shareholders and you have lots of other constituents, I think at some point in time, you also have to kind of change your, change your posture to a certain extent, not kind of, you know, eliminate the whole entrepreneurial mentality that got you there, but just recognize that, you know, once you start to have some success, people in many ways, whether right or wrong, expect you to start to kind of respond differently and behave in different ways. And, and I think that's a real, um, it's a real challenge for a lot of our entrepreneurs and it's a challenge for a lot of people in the business is just to recognize that, you know, part of what got you here may not necessarily be all the things that can sustain you Once you have a different set of constituents who, in some places, you know, think about risk differently and think about kind of, you know, your product roadmap and things differently than you might have thought when you were in a private market where, you know, you had a little bit more freedom and flexibility.
0: Okay. So, let's talk about the number two thing that VCs want, the big idea. Uh, You say ideas have to look a little bit crazy. (laughs) What are common misconceptions about these startup ideas?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of my partners, Chris Dixon, says that we are in the business of investing in good ideas that look like bad ideas, is basically how he describes it. And so if you think about it, if you've got a two-by-two matrix, right, of there's good ideas that are good ideas, and those are great, but they're probably too obvious to be startup ideas because, you know, everybody knows they're good ideas, which means the economic rents over time just go away, right, because it attracts a lot of competition, and then there's the opposite quadrant, which is the bad ideas that are, in fact, bad ideas. And hopefully, obviously, you avoid those, but uh, we don't always get there. And so we're, we're in this small section of the you know good ideas that look like bad ideas. Um, and what I, what I think that means, which I think is very important, is, look, it's, the, it's often the non-obvious, the outlier things that really kind of are, have success in this business. And I, I think that's for, reason, that's for a couple of reasons. Number one is... It is certainly the case oftentimes when you talk to consumers, they don't always know what exactly they want, right? And so people talk about consumer research and it's wonderful, but you know, it's often the case particularly around shifting technology platforms that I don't think anybody you know, told the Lyft you know, founders that what I want is to be able to call a car anytime from my phone, right? It's not obvious you know, that that happens. And sometimes actually the presence of the technology creates consumer demand that just didn't exist before. But it's also the case, uh, there's this very famous quote from uh, Max Planck, who was a German physicist, uh, who said, technology advances one funeral at a time. And uh, at least how I interpret what that means is, you know, is that there is this limit to humans' ability to adopt new technology, and sometimes, unfortunately, it takes new generations of, you know, people to be able to kind of, you know, pass the baton for, for new pieces of technology. And so for something to be successful on the product idea, it has to really be dramatically better than what the current state of affairs are. Um, the analogy we use internally is uh, the difference between an aspirin and a vitamin, right? So, uh, you know, for obviously, you know, if you, if you, you know, have a daily vitamin that you take, it's great, but it's kind of a little bit of a nice to have, right? If you... The analogy I like to use, if you, you know, if, you, if you leave your house by accident you forgot to take your vitamin this morning, you're probably not going to turn around and go back and take your vitamin. But if you've got a splitting headache and you forgot to take your aspirin this morning, like you're going to turn the car around and do whatever it takes to do that. And so for products to kind of overcome this consumer inertia that it's very hard for people to adopt new things products really have to be aspirins and not vitamins. They have to be, you know, 10x better than what the current state of affairs are to kind of overcome that inertia. And that's why this concept of big ideas really is is critical.
0: Okay, so the third aspect is market size. You write the cardinal rule of VC investing is everything starts and ends with market size. Why is it so paramount?
1: Yeah, so this goes back to kind of where we started the conversation, which is what's the incentive structure of a venture capitalist, right? And so if you think about this, You know, our incentive structure is we've had these limited partners, these universities and foundations who said, your number one job in life, and quite frankly, you have a legal fiduciary responsibility to this number one job in life, is to earn a very high rate of return on my investment. Okay? So that's kind of thing number one. Thing number two is whether we like it or not, the reality is we are more often wrong than we're right in this business. Uh, And so people may know this, but just to give you a rough sense, if you look at a VC portfolio, probably about 50% of what we do uh, it will be very politely called impaired, which is another euphemistic way of saying basically you lost all your money. Okay. It didn't work. And you know, maybe you get a few cents back on the dollar and then you've got probably 20 or 30% where you make some money. Uh, but if you kind of, if you're a mathematician, you do that math, if you've got zero on 50% of your stuff and you've got a little bit of money on 20, 30%, that doesn't even get you back to one basically, right? That's still a fractional amount of money. And so the only way this business works is there has to be some minority of companies that basically become a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter or a Lyft, you know, whatever the case may be, that can earn 10, 25, 50, 100 times your money. So I am going to answer your question. If you take those two pieces together, which is our job is to earn a higher ed return. Unfortunately, you know, we don't get it right often, and we have to find this small subset of companies that really get it right. What that means is we have to invest in companies that have a chance to be a Facebook, which means they have to be going after a market that is big enough to be able to sustain a company that can ultimately go public and ultimately be a long term self sustaining business, right? And there's no magic rules on that, but if you think about today what it takes to be a public company you probably have to be able to sustain a several billion dollar market cap as, as a public company, which again, depending upon the industry, probably means you have to at least believe you can get to a $300, $500 million revenue business that still can grow even at that scale at 30, 40, 50% a year for a period of time. And so that kind of then backs you into this idea that if the market size is too small, no matter how good the, no matter how good the business is, it's very hard to actually make it a VC-financeable business just given, unfortunately, the economics of the way our, our business works. Right.
0: So there are a couple of key terms. I don't want to get too technical here, but can you talk about these key terms from an entrepreneur's point of view to help them understand where, you, where the VC world is? Power, the power law curve and positive signaling.
1: Yeah. Okay, so power law is um, uh, a more fancy way of basically describing what I just described, which is, for those of you who are mathematicians, right, the idea of a power law is that you have, you know, in a, will uh, take a step back, right, normally things are, you know, a lot of things are what are called normal distributions, right, where you have kind of, you know, things in the middle and you have these nice little, you know, tails, and the distribution of returns is, you know, predictable and, and easily understood, A power law is the opposite. It's what I described in terms of how VC returns work, which is a very small number of companies drives 70, 80, 90% of the returns, and then you have this long, flat tail out there, which is a bunch of your companies that, quite frankly, don't actually generate any meaningful return. And so it's true that that's true of... Venture funds, which is most venture funds experience a parallel curve, meaning there's a relatively small number of venture funds themselves that drive most of the returns to the whole industry. There's a very small number of companies within a given fund that drive most of the returns. There's often in a venture capital firm a very small number of the partners also who are responsible for a lot of the uh, activity. And It sounds odd, but actually it turns out power laws are everywhere, basically. If you look at the U.S. stock market, uh, there's been a lot of studies on this. It turns out that five or ten stocks actually drive the vast majority of returns, you know, in any given year in a market. Um, You know, this is true. You know, it's true in lots of different areas. So that's kind of what a power law means, and it drives, again, all this behavior, which is, it's very hard for us to know which of those investments is going to ultimately be the driver in the power law. So you need to kind of build a portfolio, but with those foundational principles of big market, big idea, great team that hopefully increase the likelihood of something being a power law. Uh, You asked me a second one, which I'm blanking on now. And the
0: positive signaling.
1: Positive signaling, yeah. So um, what I mean by that is... um, if you think about VCs, a reason why you might choose a VC, there's lots of reasons why, but often what happens is when a VC backs an entrepreneur, effectively their brands to a certain extent become merged, right? Which is, you know, if we if we back a company, then, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, kind of the positive brand of our association gets kind of, you know, allied with that company and creates what's, you know, what we call a positive signal, right? Which is hopefully... Employees look at that and say, well, you know, we think these Andreessen Horowitz folks are pretty smart and interesting people. They backed some interesting companies. And so, therefore, if I'm an employee and I'm going to go look at this company, I'm more likely to join it because it's backed by us versus maybe a firm that they they don't have as much, uh, you know, kind of uh, familiarity with. Or similarly in customers, right? So, you know, a customer might, uh, you know, might say, hey, look, you know, I don't know much about this business, but I know it's backed by some very smart, you know, financiers. It's just like the old adage, right? You know, kind of nobody got fired for hiring IBM or McKinsey or things of that sort, right? There is this positive signal that comes from that brand that connotes value. It connotes kind of success. And the whole idea here is can the, you know, VCs and the entrepreneurs kind of rub that off on one another in a way that hopefully makes the company building process a little bit easier and smoother.
0: Okay. So let's move on to the pitch. Can you share some do's and don'ts about pitching
1: VCs? So again, I, I think where we should start is to go back to those three foundational pieces, right? Which is okay. Market size, team and product, right? And, so I think good pitches, number one, uh, tell a very good and expansive view of market size, right? So uh, again, you know, let's, let's talk about uh, uh, Airbnb would be a great example uh, that we've had in our portfolio. So when Airbnb first started, for those of you who remember, it was basically, uh, you know, uh, starving college students sleeping on people's couches. That was basically what the business was. And if you were myopic in your view of the market size, you might have said, okay, that's interesting, but how many, you know, starving college students are out there and how big could this be? And, you know, you might kind of facetiously look at, you know, the size of the ramen noodle market or the size of the, you know, kind of uh, macaroni and cheese market as good proxies for what other things that starving college students, you know, consume to help you understand Airbnb. Um, But what the Airbnb team did a great job is they said, look, that's not the way to think about the market. The way to think about the market is... Imagine how the market size could expand as a result of the presence of this technology, right? So if we give people an easier way to travel, uh, maybe we unlock locations that people couldn't go to because they don't have good hotel infrastructure. Or maybe there's people who just don't like the idea of traveling in hotels or, quite frankly, can't afford it, but, you know, want to be able to rent out a home or things of that sort. And so this idea of kind of technology driving expansion of market size, if you can tell a credible story about that, that's, a, that's a certainly a big, big do. And then the second thing is, and again, you know, is, is goes back to team, is you have to remember that once the VC kind of says, okay, that's an interesting market, the question then is why do I back you versus any of the other number of teams that might come into this market, right? So that's the fundamental question that I think you have to be willing to, you know, kind of convince the, uh, you know, the, the VCs is, again, what is it that makes you as a team uniquely qualified to go after this opportunity we use this term uh, inside the firm called an earned secret, right? So, you know, a secret being is there something you know that no one else knows because of some experience you've had or maybe it's been your life's work or maybe you were a, you know, studied, you know, you're a, a you know, expert, for, you have a PhD in an area, something that gives you a secret and then the method by which you earned it, you know, kind of is again that experiential value that you came to. So those are probably the two most foundational things I think that, you know, I would hope, you know, to see entrepreneurs Think about when they come into pitch
0: and any screaming don'ts. Can you give kind of an example of some entrepreneur who pitched you and just was, like, yeah. you know, just shot him or herself in the foot in the first five minutes?
1: Yeah. You know, it happens very infrequently, to be completely honest. But I would say, yeah, the things to avoid are um, one is what I mentioned is. If I can convince you to change your story or change your kind of go-to-market in 30 minutes, then that's a, bad, that's a problem. We, we, we both probably have a problem there. And so, yeah, even if, you, uh, even if you're inclined to agree with me, don't tell me what you think I want to hear because I actually don't want to hear you adopt my view. I want, quite frankly, I'd like you to tell me why you know so much more about this topic than I do and therefore uh, why I'm just flat wrong. Um, you know, secondly is a lot of people come in and they say, this is a great investment. And oh, by the way, if it doesn't work out, here's three or four companies that will acquire this business, right? So don't worry, you know, Mr. or Mrs. VC, you're not going to lose your money, basically, because there's, there's an exit, right? That's kind of how people think about it. But again, if you go back to where we talked about, like, that's not what we're playing for, right? We are, we are not playing in generally to kind of recover 50 cents on the dollar or get our money back, right? We're trying to figure out, can this company be one of those you know, incredibly important, long-standing companies. And we worry about the motivations of an entrepreneur who comes in who's, who says that because we worry that means they may not want to kind of do the hard work and the heavy lifting that it will take to ultimately hopefully get this to be a public company. And so, you know, it's a little bit of the same. It's the, it's the same side of, of the coin, which is don't tell us what you think we want to hear, but understand the incentive structures under which we operate. And hopefully, you know, there's a match between your ambitions and obviously what the expectations and ambitions of the venture capitalists are.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. So we have an audience question right. name one deal you passed on Scott where you did not invest and it went on to become a unicorn and what did you learn yeah all right um, how so, long did you berate yourself yes exactly uh,
1: I, I talk about this a little bit in the book so I think it's probably a safe safe to talk about and if it's not the books already published so I guess it doesn't matter at this point um, we passed on square actually not just once but many times um, and uh, and for those of you who know Square, right, Square has gone on to be a very important company. I don't know what the market cap is now, but it's certainly a $30-plus 1000000000 market cap company. And so for all the venture capitalists who invested in it, it was a very, very important business. The reason we passed on it actually uh, was interesting was we saw it at the very beginning of the company. And some of you may not know this, but the history of Square is uh, it was co-founded by Jack Dorsey, who we all know, of course, today, but also by a gentleman named Jim McElvey, who many of us don't know. Um, And the origin story of Square was Jim McElvey was a childhood friend of Jack Dorsey's. I think they grew up either in Kansas City or Missouri, somewhere in the Midwest. Um, and Jim McElvey's job was, he was a professional glass blower, uh, was what he did for a living. And so he used to go take his wares and sell them at county fairs, you know, presumably in the Midwest and other places. And he was incredibly frustrated by the fact that lots of people don't carry cash on them. And he didn't have a mechanism by which obviously he could charge a credit card to be able to sell his, you know, his, uh, you know, fine, fine art. Uh, And so that was a little bit of, you know, I don't know if that was 100% true, but that was kind of the origin story they told us. And, you know, we're all kind of lemmings for a good story, as I said, so it sounded like a great story. Um, The reason we passed, though, was uh, we had a very short time to evaluate the deal, and we knew Jack Dorsey well, just because, you know, uh, many of my partners had been involved as individual investors in Twitter. Um, but we didn't know Jim well at all. And at the time, Jim was the CEO of the company. Jack was actually not full-time in the business. Jack was still involved with Twitter, and he was kind of the executive chairman, is kind of the way to think about it. Um, so we had a really short period of time, and we couldn't evaluate it. Um, and we thought to ourselves, gee, like, this company would be awesome. If only Jack were the CEO, then, like, we would write a check immediately. Now, uh, so We passed. Uh, that was a very costly mistake. Uh, that The valuation at the time was probably about $40 million, right? So the difference between $40 million and $30 billion is more than I can compute in my head, but it's a big number. Um, and, and we passed for that reason. Now, you know, we look back on that. Sometimes we say, okay, like... That was a good reason to pass in the sense that, you know, one of our foundational principles is we bet on the teams because we know these products are going to change and the market's going to change, but, um, you know, people don't change, basically. At the end of the day, kind of that's your, that's your static bet. Um, now, what we got wrong was Jack Dorsey came to that exact same conclusion about three months after that uh, that fundraise ended, and he put himself, installed himself as the CEO of the company and took over running the day-to-day company. So, unfortunately, we were right in our intuition that maybe Jack you know, could be the person to make this a great company. And we were wrong in maybe not giving Jack enough credit that he would figure that out over time. And we probably should have just taken, taken that bet alongside. So that's a sad one that, uh, you know, unfortunately, the one that got away. Yes, Yes,
0: you live and learn. So let's talk about the, the wider environment, Technology, Silicon Valley, is facing a lot of threats right yeah. now. We're in this tech backlash. Some people call it the tech lash. Government regulation, investigations by SEC, Department of Justice, breakup plans by lawmakers. What is your perspective on that, and how is that going to affect the VC and startup scene?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really important issue, um, and you know, you and I talked about this a little bit, uh, kind of what we were preparing. Um, I think what's happened is, I think two things have happened. One is just... Um, we live a little bit in, you know, kind of our own version of a bubble here, not a financial bubble, but a little bit of a hermetically sealed bubble in the sense that, you know, we all, we all mostly see the benefits of technology, right? So it's wonderful, you know, and uh, I love it. It's wonderful that uh, my wife was joking about it last night that, you know, we could have dinner delivered to our door by, you know, going on our cell phone and telling DoorDash to come bring us dinner, right? And it's wonderful that we can go home tonight in a, hopefully you all go home in a lift and not an Uber, uh, but uh, you can, uh, it's wonderful that we can do these things. And so we, we see all this technology, um, but I think what we... Haven't realized and we haven't had this appreciation for is the ben- we know the benefits of that technology are not equally distributed and equally shared. And so, uh, I think we've had this view that okay, if we see all this great stuff, the whole rest of the world and the rest of the country must see it too. And, and unfortunately, that's just not a reality, right? We have you know, incoming quality in some respects is probably exacerbated by technology. We also have a we also live in a world where the pace of change is just so much faster, right? So, if you study these things and you look at the impact of technology right over history. It's always been the case that, you know, despite kind of short-term, you know, kind of jitters, that technology revolutions have, in fact, always been better for consumer welfare. They've always been better for job creation. But they've also always come at a pace that's different than what we're seeing, right? And so... um I think, that, I think we've got to do a better job of doing that. One of the things that we do at Andreessen and Horowitz is we spend, and I personally do this, we spend a decent amount of time in D.C. and are trying to at least have a dialogue and a conversation with regulators about, okay, what is happening out here? What are the implications for regulated industries? Uh, and I think as an industry we've got to do, we have to do more of that. Um, we've had this theme for a long time that we invest under called software is eating the world. And what that really means to us in very simple terms is we view software as an enabling technology that we think will permeate many, many new industries over time. And, right, you see that from, you know, obviously stuff we've talked about today, right? It's permeating the car industry. It's permeating the the hotel industry through Airbnb. Um, And if we're right about that thesis, that will mean that software will eat more and more regulated industries over time. And so I think there's no turning back from our business in the sense that we will increasingly intersect with regulated industries. And so I think for us to be successful... We are going to have to obviously spend more time appreciating and recognizing that not everybody, you know, only sees obviously the wonderful things that at least, you know, we all get the pleasure of seeing from technology, but that the dislocations and, you know, income inequality and, and you know, kind of job retraining and training issues that happen or ha- have to happen are important and critical policy issues.
0: And are you concerned about the Cold War with China?
1: Yes, I am. Uh, so, uh, and we were involved. Uh, we were involved. Um, I had the chance to testify in the Senate on this new bill that uh, that unfortunately uh, passed uh, that that makes it harder for kind of non-U.S. investors to invest in U.S. companies. It's it applies to lots of countries, but it was you know very clearly you know geared towards Chinese investment. Um, what I'm concerned about is look, there's real, there's no question, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm certain that there is bad behavior in in, in some areas, right? Where I'm sure there are there are times where there's been you know intellectual property theft. And uh, there's been, um, you know, kind of, you know, anti-competitive behavior. There's no question. You know, some of that exists, right? And I think that exists, you know, probably in lots of industries and not just in terms of U.S.-China relationships, but in other relationships. What I worry about, though, is um, that we are, you know, we've been such a huge beneficiary of investment capital and entrepreneurship in this country. And so just so you have a sense, um, 20 years ago, the U.S. venture capital industry was 90% of global venture capital dollars. Today, that number is 50%. Now, the pie has gotten bigger, and so on a nominal basis, we've all grown and we've all benefited from technology. But one of the reasons why I think entrepreneurship has been so, you know, critical to U.S. job and economic growth is that we have generally had, you know, policies and, uh, you know, kind of an environment that fostered entrepreneurship. And I worry when we start to do things, whether it's, you know, impeding free flow of capital from places like China or we have things like, you know, making immigration more difficult and therefore impeding the free flow of talent – Uh, that, you know, the long-term ramifications for those, I think, are very serious for this business. And so, uh, you know, I'm all for, you know, free trade. I'm all for fair trade. But I also think we have to think about what do we need to do as a policy policy matter to make sure that the U.S. continues to be a very attractive place for people to grow and build companies. And, uh, you know, I I am concerned that we are, you know, at risk of at least losing, you know, a lot of the benefits that we've had over many years.
0: And we talked earlier about... um... The current administration's attitude to immigration. Mm-hmm. Can you talk specifically about what that means, their current stance, and what it may mean if Donald Trump is re-elected?
1: Yeah. So, if you look in tech, uh, so if you look particularly in Silicon Valley and at tech, you know, immigration is critically important to the growth of this business. So the studies vary but somewhere but the data is something like somewhere between 35 and 50% of startup back companies have at least one non-us native founder right so you know immigrants as founders is a really critical part of our business and then if you look at just you know immigrants in terms of just as you know kind of employees in these companies they're incredibly significant and you know the biggest challenge that uh, i think you know certainly we have as an industry is where you have an administration, uh, and it's not just the administration, obviously, there's other people, of course, in D.C. as well, but where you have, you know, kind of politicians who are trying to restrict the free flow of immigration, um, I, I think that's just net problematic for our business. I mean, look, if you even just take out tech and you look at birth rates in the U.S., right, birth rates continue to decline in the U.S. as they have in other developed countries, the only two ways you improve economic growth in a country is you get more productivity or you get more consumption basically right the way you get more consumption is you either have kids or you you know basically bring in immigrants to increase your population and those are you know long-term trends that aren't good for us you know we already see and we see other countries already reacting to this so you know canada to their credit has been very liberal in terms of their immigration policies for particularly for tech and and it shows there are a lot more companies now setting up r&d sites in canada they've done things like give r&d credits uh, tax credits so you know kind of it's already obviously less expensive generally to probably hire an engineer there than it is in the valley, just given cost of living. But for many uh, companies, you know, you can get up to 50% R&D credits against the cost of an engineer up to a certain cap. But, you know, you're talking about literally, you know, kind of it's half the price at the end of the day and probably more so when you obviously factor in cost of living. So there's things that, that again, are just, they're, they're so important and so critical to the, you know, kind of continued sustenance of this business that, you know i think it's 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 our obligation to kind of make sure we talk about it and hopefully be involved in positive policy change around it
0: right and um talk about the economy the broader economy yeah. we've been in a 10-year expansion some commentators are saying we're ready, we should gear up for the downturn. It's coming. What is your perspective on the timing of that, and how will that affect your VC decisions in the next two or three years?
1: Yeah, so I am, I am not a macroeconomist, but I actually took some economics classes at Stanford, so I feel free to prognosticate about uh, the economy. Uh, look, I'll give you the honest answer. I, I, have, I have no idea uh, what's going to happen. Look, you're right, which is, look, we've been in a 10 year bull market. It's also the case that since the great depression we haven't seen a global financial crisis like we did in 08 uh, and even you can argue it's different from the from the from you know kind of the the, uh, the great depression in the sense of you know this was a credit driven crisis in many ways So I don't know that we know, and uh, there was a great article, actually, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal today, Mark Andreessen was traveling, and he sent me a picture of it on my phone, um, which is literally, uh, the Wall Street Journal posted this picture of, I think there were 150 economists who they asked at the end of the year, what was the the 10-year treasury rate going to be, you know, kind of by mid-year? Not a single one of them got it right, and they weren't even close, right? So I don't know where it is today, it's probably low twos or something is where the 10-year treasury is, and it wasn't even close. Um, which to me just goes to the fundamental point that I, I don't think anyone really knows, quite frankly. And the way we view it is um, we kind of think about our business in two ways, which is part of what we do is we invest in very, very early stage companies. And that literally could mean, you know, a few founders, no product. And whether these companies will be successful is going to take 5, 7, 10, 12 years for us to know. I don't worry too much about macro trends for those types of companies. I think if we get the right trends on technology and our companies are careful about how they build and grow themselves and how they spend their money, then, you know, kind of obviously, you know, there are bad scenarios, really bad scenarios are going to happen, but in most scenarios, those companies hopefully will be able to grow. What it does mean, though, is as we invest in later stages of companies, you know, companies that are, you know, tens and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at some point in time, you do have to be more conscious about how you price those companies relative to how the public markets price those companies because. The closer in time you are to going public, the more likely that a macro shock will then have kind of you know ramifications into how those companies are valued. So that's kind of how we think about it. But look, I, I'm an optimist by heart. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be in this business otherwise. So I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about it.
0: So we have an audience question. What is the investment thesis for your bio fund? Yeah. Um, how does your firm think about healthcare and tech companies?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, excuse me, we um, we've long been investing on this thesis called software seeing the world, and what that means to us is is we think of software we think of software as this very broad enabling technology, and quite frankly, we think of our job is to not necessarily predict the future, but to basically be in the talent business. And what I mean by that is to kind of get in front of all the most interesting entrepreneurs who are doing something in software, and have an open mind to allow them to drag us into other industries. And then we have to figure out, okay, does the intersection of software with this industry make sense? And so that's kind of how we started in what we call the BioFund, which is kind of 2012, 2013, we started to see this confluence of entrepreneurs who were trained biologists coming out of, in many cases, graduate programs, but who also had grown up as computer scientists. They had just, whether formally or informally, me. whether formally or informally, uh, they understood and had a program, basically. So we saw the intersection of those two, and we said, excuse me.
0: I'll give you a pat on the back.
1: <laughs> exactly. I didn't know you were going to make me choke up on this stage here. Um, it's my tough question. Exactly. Um, so, But that's how we kind of got into bio, was we said, look, we think this is really interesting, which is you've got these really interesting kind of, you know, influence of computer science on biology, and we think it can create really interesting and important companies. So we started doing some investing and then decided in 2015 that we should break it out uh, as its own fund. So that was kind of how we got there. And uh, it turned out to be great. And that's, you know, we also do crypto. And we got to crypto in the same way, which is we just started to see a critical mass of entrepreneurs who were starting to do things where crypto was the foundational platform on which they were building. And, you know, a lot of people ask us all the time, can you predict the future? You know, what's this hot thing you should be investing in? And what I tell them all the time is, look. I don't think we know. I think we have ideas, and we clearly have biases, and you know, we, we should. But at the end of the day, we are in the talent business, and I think our job is to basically follow the talent, and hopefully some of those things lead to really interesting opportunities. Great.
0: Okay, so let's talk about diversity. Um, yeah. I'd love to get your take on the Me Too movement, Ellen Poe. Um, Julian Guthrie's new book is just out. It's called Alpha Girls, about four women who took on the venture capital you know the the um, what do they call them the the bad boys of venture capital, and they succeeded despite the odds. Um, I don't know if you've read that book, but there's some yeah. there's some good lessons in there because it is it's a very tough um, place to to thrive as a woman. I think the stat is less than ten percent of decision makers in the VC world are women.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So I think the number is. Yeah, it's about ten or twelve percent, depending on how you cut the numbers. And then, as we talked about earlier, about two percent of two um, percent uh, of kind of funding going to female founders. So, uh, it's it's a real problem. So here here's how we think about it. So I think there's I think you have to think about the world in terms of two types of bias, right? There's there's explicit bias, which clearly the Me Too movement, you know, kind of you know uh, exposed in a in a very you know you know horrible way in many respects. Which is look. Uh, there are people who are biased against women and other minorities, other cases, and that manifests itself in terrible behavior. And look, we have to root that stuff out. And, and you know, it's not fun when you're in an industry where you start to see those types of things happening, but I think it's important, in many respects, the Me Too movement that happened in venture capital was important to make sure that at least we shone a light on something that you know, kind of was underground for many, many years. So I think you have to attack extro- you know, kind, of, uh, you know, kind of explicit bias. I think the more challenging problem that we have to work on, though, is implicit bias. And I always use myself as an example because it's easier, you know, it's easier to talk about it when it's, when it's yourself. But, you know, I was lucky enough. I grew up in Houston, uh, in a, you know, in a very, you know, kind of comfortable middle class family. I came out here to Stanford, and so I, whether I like it or not, I'm implicitly biased by the networks in which I came from, right? So, you know, when I'm going to hire a job, it's more likely than not that I can go look at um, people I know from Stanford and hire them, right? Because they're familiar with me, and so my networks will reflect whatever bias is reflected in um, in those networks. So I think what we have to do and what we're trying to do is we have to figure out a way to recognize that that implicit bias exists, and we also have to figure out a way to say, okay, how can we reach out to networks that aren't otherwise connected to ourselves and do a better job of, of trying to do that? So as an example, when we hire people in the firm, we say to our hiring managers, look, we know you've got your own networks, but let's also make sure that you're proactively reaching out to networks you wouldn't otherwise reach out to, so... I'll just give you a simple example. There's a group called MLT, which does a lot of work with African-Americans who are trying to get into business and finance roles. And so we say, great, let's send our job recs there because we acknowledge, okay, like we don't have great diversity in our own networks, but hopefully we will see some candidates as a result of doing that. And it's the same way we think about it in the firm, which is uh, we have a fund that we call the cultural leadership fund that we started. And it's, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it's supposed to do is to help improve our connectivity into the African-American entrepreneurial community. And, I think if we can do those things and at least say, hey, look, we are here, we're open for business, we recognize you may not have existing networks here, but we want to uh, help solve that problem. You know, I think the book, again, in some ways, hopefully, you know, kind of demystifying the business helps make it less of a black box and more inviting for people. I think that's the only way we're going to solve this problem. And, you know, I don't want to be pessimistic, but look, it's going to take time. These are these are deep-rooted problems. These are deep-rooted challenges we have in the industry. These jobs at the, at the investment firms don't turn over very often, and so... I think it's going to take some time. But I think if we think about this as a network connectivity problem, figure out how can we, you know, force ourselves to reach out into networks that we don't otherwise run into every day, I think we have a shot at least.
0: And how many general partners are women at Andresen Horowitz?
1: 20% of our general partners are women today. So three out of 15. Uh, That's only in the last two years, though. So for, you know, the first eight years of our history, we did not have any female partners. What we realized... um, was we had a criteria that we had as a hard and fast rule when we first started the firm, which was that you had to have been a founder or CEO to be a general partner. And we had lots of reasons for that, and we can debate those uh, at another time. But, of, you know, it took us a while, but we finally realized, of course, that's a very limiting, uh, you know, set, right? The, the set of kind of diverse candidates who have been founders and CEOs just isn't that big uh, in the valley. So about two years ago, we sat down and we said, okay, what were we really trying to accomplish with that criteria? And what we realized was... That was a proxy for the real objective, which was, how are you maximally attractive to the very best entrepreneurs in your domain? So what would cause an entrepreneur to actually want to choose you as a general partner to work with them? And we said, look, one way to, to evidence that is, yes, that you've been a founder or CEO in a company, but there's other ways to evidence that, right? You could be, you could be the domain expert you know, in this area. You could be you know, the number one blogger or the number one you know, kind of speaker on a topic, or you might have other areas. So you know, one of our general partners, Connie Chan, for example, is an expert on... Chinese and U.S. business models in the consumer market. And that's incredibly attractive for consumer companies who are interested in learning from China and who also potentially might think of China as an end-user market. So it's, things, it's something like that where we finally said, okay, if we change that criteria, if, if we change that and realize that the, that the founder CEO is really just a proxy for the ultimate criteria, we can open up the funnel and therefore have a much more diverse candidate pool. And you know, that's what's enabled us over the last couple of years to add you know, three women to our general partner ranks.
0: Got it. So let's talk about ethics. Yes. Um, We had the cautionary tale of Theranos that imploded last year. It's a blood testing company that was shut down. Talk about quick lessons learned and also thoughts on Facebook. You know, they used to have a mantra, move fast and break things. They've moved back from that, but they have been cavalier about sharing our personal data, etc. Just talk about ethics and how what your philosophy is on ethics and how you train the entrepreneurs you work with yeah. to have that front and center.
1: So I think there's two important things that I would distinguish between. One is, um, you know, Theranos, which obviously we'll all, we'll all learn eventually because there are, as you know, you know criminal and civil uh, investigations there. But I think there's a difference between, you know, you know, outright fraud. And, and we don't know that that's the case, but at least, you know, there's at least an allegation of that and we'll see what happens. Um, there's no question, obviously, that, you know, that's, you know, we, we can't have behavior like that in this industry. Then I think there's kind of what you mentioned, which is kind of, you know, I don't know if Facebook is the perfect example, but there is um, this idea that um, sometimes, you know, kind of you have to kind of push faster than maybe sometimes kind of, uh, you know, kind of is comfortable and, you know, you do break things sometimes and kind of ask for forgiveness a second um, and I, I think there are elements of that that are still fine in this business. So again, there's a difference, I think, between are you actually com- you know, committing crimes and are you defrauding people and are you just trying to kind of you know, move the ball quickly and you recognize that that means there's going to be iteration of products and sometimes you're going to put stuff out that may not be perfect. I think the, the big difference is as companies mature, it's a little bit kind of the Elon Musk question we talked about earlier. I think different standards of behavior are appropriate depending upon the size and the relative maturity of these companies. And so behavior like, you know, running fast and breaking things and kind of, you know, maybe putting out half-baked products, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's perfectly okay, but it's not as unacceptable in the kind of, you know, pure startup world where the scope of the harm potentially is smaller because you're still dealing with relatively small amounts of customers. But, you know, when you get to a scale of a Facebook, look, I think you just have a different responsibility and a different level of attention that you have to pay to these these things. So it's a really important issue. What we try to kind of work with our companies on is, um, you know, we, we, our, best, our best bet on these companies is to hopefully use our persuasive uh, techniques to to make them value these things. Um, but, again, in general, we are comfortable at, you know, small company scale with the idea that, you know, moving fast sometimes is the appropriate way to do it. You don't have all the information. But that over time, again, you know, kind of your, your level of responsibility changes based upon your success. Again, it's a little bit goes back to kind of, you know, are you the pirate or the Navy? At some point in time, you know, you kind of have to act like the Navy once you've actually conquered the ship. And so you saying it's activity. okay
0: to be like a pirate in the early stages when you're approaching VCs in the early
1: days? Yeah. So – It depends on what pirate means. Yes. (laughs) Um, So what I am saying, what is okay is, yes, look, fraud and misleading people and stuff like that is clearly not right. But the idea that, yes, like you might enter into a market where you're not exactly sure what the product should look like. You know, you might have a theory on what your regulatory structure is, but you're not 100% sure. I mean, I'll give you a great example. You know, as you know, we're investors in Airbnb and Lyft. Those companies probably couldn't have been successful if they asked for permission every time they went into a new market Uh, and waited for that to happen just because, you know, it just didn't work, right? And so you could argue, and you may say, look, that was unethical, and, you know, they should have kind of gotten permission first. I think... The reality is, and I think what they did find was they said, look, we're going to go into a market, we believe we have, a, we have a defensible theory on why what we're doing is appropriate from a regulatory perspective, but we also know that we're likely to get challenged on that. But over time, the idea that, look, if the consumer utility is big enough, there is a way to actually deal with these issues. So that's kind of my definition of a pirate. I think that's reasonable, acceptable behavior. You know, fraud and misleading people is not acceptable.
0: All right. So let's talk about future trends. Uh, the VC world, by some perspectives, you know, is facing a lot of challenges. You have competition from crowd funding, angel yep. investors, other seed funding. Talk about um, the competition there, um, blockchain potential and its pitfalls. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I don't think there's any question. This business is probably more competitive than it's ever been. Um, uh, if you look at the in the uh, US here. Over the last 10 years, there's been about 500 new firms started in the kind of what we call the seed category, kind of the early, early stage category, and it's dramatically changed the kind of competitive market for a lot of firms, and it's super competitive. I think what things like ICOs, which are these initial coin offerings that have happened or crowdfunding, I think they're all symptomatic of the same issue, which is capital is no longer the scarce resource in this business. So for most of the first 35, 40 years of venture capital, kind of call it early 1970s to mid-2000s, Money was the scarce resource, the venture capitalists had it, and therefore, you know, this is a very crass way to describe it, but the VCs were probably up here and the the entrepreneurs were down here, right? The balance of power clearly was with the VCs. Over the last 10 to 15 years, I would argue that's almost completely inverted itself, which is capital is no longer scarce entrepreneurs understand the business very well they have choices and therefore they are kind of more up here and the VCs are down here now nobody should cry for the VCs they're all fine and their kids all you know have shoes and go to school but but I think that balance of power has changed and so to me the whole question about ICOs all this other stuff is are you something more than capital being capital alone is not going to be differentiator so you have to do something that an entrepreneur perceives as valuable other than provide money And I think as an industry, look, if we don't do that and all we are is a source of capital, there'll always be someone out there with more capital. There'll always be someone out there with a lower cost of capital. And, you know, we will be the last dinosaurs at the end of the day. So I think that's the kind of that's the that's the challenge and the opportunity, I think, for this industry.
0: Great. So you end the book with a nod to Tom Friedman. Your your (laughs) chapter is titled The World is Flat. What are the implications of our flatter world?
1: So this is amazing. Um, I'm going to answer your question, but. I literally had dinner with Tom Friedman, uh, three nights ago in DC, which was the most amazing thing. And I don't know the guy at all. I just, you know, I, I put this thing in the book there, um, I was lucky enough, we had a book party there, and, and uh, the uh, people who hosted the book party invited him to come to this dinner. I thought it was a joke when I saw the uh, invite list, but uh, it was a really fascinating experience. As I told him, you know, look, my, my allusion to you in the book predated the fact that I, was ever, that I knew I'd ever get to meet you, so it was kind of an interesting serendipity. What that means to me is, it kind of goes to a little bit of this stat I threw up before, which is, you know, 90% of global venture capital dollars from the U.S. 20 years ago, today it's 50%. To me, what the world is flat means is that There's no reason to believe over time that we won't have proliferation of technology, you know, kind of as broadly distributed across the world as we do in the U.S. today, that we won't have great engineers and great founders and great opportunities in pretty much every world. Right. We know talent is is very well distributed. Sometimes the preconditions for talent to then kind of create entrepreneurship obviously takes longer. So that to me is, is both the opportunity and I think the challenge, you know, and, and why, for example, I care about a lot of these policy issues in the U.S. Because if we do things that disincent entrepreneurship here, there are great countries and great places all over the world where entrepreneurs will go and do stuff. So I think it's both a wonderful thing, which is if we can have, you know, economic development and we can have kind of, you know, you know, standards of living improve and we can have growth in countries that didn't have it before. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think it also means the stakes are much higher for us and our policymakers, in particular in this country, to make sure that we don't do things that disenfranchise uh, people to do so. So I mean, I'm very optimistic about what all that means, but I also think it's a little bit of a cautionary tale that, uh, you know, the, the, the genie's out of the bottle, right? Technology exists, capital flows very freely. And you know we need to be mindful of the fact that um, you know we need to make sure we do things that preserve a lot of the advantages that you know we've, we've been lucky enough to have over the years.
0: All right, so we reached a point in the program. time for just one last question, right. and it leads on from what you were talking about. The world is flat. Where do you see Silicon Valley in five, ten years' time? Will it still be the innovation and tech center of the universe? And what will the key growth areas be?
1: Yeah, I think in that time period, uh, I, I think it's unlikely that Silicon Valley uh, kind of changes in terms of its stature today. So if you look today in the U.S., California, New York, and Boston basically comprise something like 70% of all venture funds in the U.S. So that will let the margin change over a 5-10 to 10 year period. I'm not convinced it will change dramatically. Um, you know, I, I th- and the reason I, I feel that way is I think people forget how powerful network effects can be. And uh, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. You could kind of almost date Silicon Valley all the way back to the founding of Stanford in the late 1800s uh, because there's been such a confluence of academia and commercial activity. Really, It was really one of the founding principles of Stanford. And, you know, if you read your history of venture capital, you know, venture capital started in Boston and lots of places, but a lot of the academic institutions weren't as friendly to, you know, kind of this idea of a little bit of a rotating revolving door, you know, for professors. So that's been built up for a long time. You know, you certainly can date Silicon Valley to, you know, kind of the military industrial complex and semiconductors. So if you think about that, you've had, you know, at least 70 plus years of just, you know, kind of the network being built up. So that's not to say that other markets won't get there. And and as I said earlier, I'm absolutely convinced they will. But uh, I think network effects are very hard to dismantle over time. And so it will take other geographies more time to kind of, you know, kind of enjoy some of those benefits. I think there's a bigger long-term question over a 30- or 50-year period, which is just, you know, kind of given housing supply and given traffic and infrastructure and tax systems and all kinds of other stuff, I, I think those, to me, are the longer, longer-term longer existential threats to, you know, kind of the, the the, you know, centrality of Silicon Valley in the technology world, but... Uh, I don't know that those are in, you know, our professional lifetime. Great.
0: Well, everyone, I hope you've enjoyed tonight's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. I would like to thank Scott Cooper, managing partner at Anderson Horowitz, our audience here in Silicon Valley, and those of you joining us on the radio. And now this meeting is adjourned.